Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at Garfield Memorial Church. Hey, if you're worshiping with us online, welcome. And I just want to say to you, if, uh, if you're carrying something today that you need to lay down that Brian was singing about for us today, would you just let Pastor Kurt know that in the feed? He's in there with you. If there's something we can pray for for you, um, let him know. Uh, talk to him about that. Um, and if you're worshiping from out of town, way out of town somewhere, if you just caught our feed, uh, let Kurt know that too. So we're so glad that we can be together in person and across the internet. Uh, it's a blessing. We're in a worship series, a teaching series called Blueprints. Blueprints for building up the body of Christ. And we're looking at the book of Ephesians. Um, Pastor Scott kicked it off, Pastor Steve last week, and, and I'm jumping in now. Um, Ephesians is a very, very different piece of writing. In fact, it's so different that many scholars have questioned whether Paul actually wrote it. Now, what's different about it is it's unlike all of Paul's other letters. Every one of Paul's letters, he's usually speaking to a situation, a historical context. That's why I hate when people try to rip the Bible out of the historical context. It wasn't talking about things sometimes in the uh, 21st century, but speaking about eternal things that we glean from the message. But Paul, in each of his letters, either a church is in a controversy, either a church is in conflict, um, either they're falling off into some kind of I'm better than you theology, and Paul confronts it, he addresses it. But in Ephesians, there's none of that. It's, it's really a universal letter. It's as though Paul sat back and said, because in Paul's life, he spent most of his ministry life in Ephesus. And so he was sitting there and spending his time and doing his missionary journeys, and he sat down and said, I need to craft something specifically about the church. Because I got all these controversies and people are going left and right and, and I need to give some blueprints. I need to give some guidelines. What is this church? And so the letter is so unique that there are 80 Greek words that Paul uses that he doesn't use anywhere else. Only here. And, and he, he quotes more hymns more praise songs of that day, more liturgy than any other place. It's a Paul is dreaming about this church. At first he felt called to persecute, hello. And then finally when Jesus brought the grace and the good news of him and, and he was able to lay down his anger and lay down his racism and lay down his misogyny because he was all of those things and lay down his uh, Jewish nationalism and lay down that if you're not like me, I get to kill you. When he laid it down and he found out God had an incredible plan for this thing called the church and he became a part of it. Now, if that doesn't prove God to you, I don't know what does. Hallelujah. 
okay? And he does this thing, and he's, he's writing this, wor- this words, and this is such a stick of dynamite that we're in right now um, that you notice you've got three pe- preachers in three weeks, and we still can't get out of chapter one. In fact, there's something so unique. I feel like preaching today. You guys might be in trouble. I, I don't know. I'm just feeling a little something here. Um, but it, what's interesting is in verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1, you wouldn't know that in the English, but in the Greek, it's one sentence. It's one sentence. Verses 3 through 14, 202 words, one sentence. Now, it reminded me my very first final exams uh, when I was a, a, a sophomore, a freshman or sophomore, I think it was freshman. I said my first final exam, right? Fact check, that would be freshman. Okay. Hey, English is my second language. It's my only language. But the thing was, uh, yeah, I, was I was playing college ball, so we'd be on the road and we're studying on buses and on planes. And, and it was the first final exam, and we had just had a game a few days before. And so I stayed up for like 48 hours, guzzling coffee. Um, and, you know, went in to take my history exam. Now, how many of you remember when you take those exams and you have to write an essay, they give you those little blue books? Yeah. You remember those? They still do that? Yeah, Every now and then? I figured for you guys, it's probably on a pad now. But for us, you know, we're scribbling those books. And my history professor um, contacted me. He said, why don't you come up to my office? And I said, uh-oh, did I flunk the exam? He said, no. He said, you actually did pretty well, but I just want to show you your first five pages of what you wrote, it's one sentence. He said, you've been sleeping very much? I said, no, not really. He said, I could tell. One sentence. Like, you may need to go back and take grammar. Like, that's a run-on sentence, right? I wish I would have known my Bible back then. And I could have said, you know, there's biblical grounds for this. Paul wrote one sentence. And verses 3 through 14. Now, English translations, they break it up into many sentences because we wouldn't be able to comprehend it if it were written that way. But I think if Paul wrote a 202-word sentence at the foundation of what it means to be the church that traveled over 12 verses of Scripture, we ought to pay attention to it. He's an architect. He's, he's a draftsperson, as I said. He's laying down blueprints. And if you... Remember grammar well enough, and I know most of you are good students here. Um, Back in grade school, you learned to understand a sentence, you had to know two things. Class, what were the two things? Subject and the predicate. You all passed. You guys did pretty good. Okay. Now we're going to talk about algebra. Gotcha. No kidding. Um, But you have to know what a sentence means. You have to know the subject and you have to know the predicate. Now, the subject of this foundational sentence of the church is God. Now you all want to go, duh. (laughs) The answer is always God or it's Jesus, right? I love the children's sermon one time when they used to do those in the church and a person was talking to the kids and said, um, you know, kids, you know any animal and it's brown and it's fuzzy and it's got a big tail and it climbs trees and it eats acorns and a little girl said, Jesus. <laughs> so what? She said, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but every answer around here is Jesus. <laughs> God is the subject. And you say, Chip, duh, why is that important? 
Why it's important in this foundational sentence of 202 words for the church is too often we act like we control the church. Too often we say about, well, we do it this way around here, or I would prefer it like this at the place, or even worse, and I've said this, it's my church. It's never my church. It's always God's church. God is the subject, and we can't forget that. In fact, you know, when Scott started this series off, he, he talked about God blesses, and as we read this sentence, God blesses, and God chooses, and God calls, and God restores, and God is at work in these things, and God is the subject of the sentence all the time. God is, it will not conform to our little desires and agendas. God is too big to fit into our political parties. God is God all by himself. God is not Santa Claus to come and evaluate you whether you're naughty or nice. God will not be manipulated by your religious performance. God is not your bellhop. He is not your butler. He is not your servant. Jesus is too big to fit into those categories. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the rose and the Sharon. He is Alpha and Omega. He's not going to fit into your back pocket for you to carry around as though he's a little bit of token. The old preachers used to say, Pilate couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. He's God all by himself. God's the subject. We can't get over this. That was the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. God was the subject of creation. God was the author. God was the artist. God was the creator, but we wanted to be like God. Well, guess what? We flunked that for, for billions of years, right? That's why I always tell people, if you want to do a Bible study, open your Bible class and read the first four words of Scripture. You know what they are? In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Chip. Not in the beginning, you. Not in the beginning, your intellect. Not in the beginning, calculus or science. Not in the beginning, your family tree. In the beginning, God. And if you flunk that part, shut the book and start over. Because God is the subject of the sentence. And that's why, when we think about the blueprint for the church, even when Solomon built his glorious temple... It was really the first church in some ways, if you would say. And it was, if you read uh, Chronicles of the extent to which they went to build this glorious, amazing temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, they would sing psalms of ascent when they would go up the hill. If you, some of you have been with me to Israel, you, you go up the hill, up into Mount Zion, up into Jerusalem, and they would sing on their way up there. And Psalm 127 is a psalm of ascent. And in Psalm 127, the first verse they would sing is, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. So God's the subject, right? We got that down? Did I shout loud enough? If you need me to start over, I'm kidding. But what's the predicate of the sentence? The predicate is what we heard read for us in verses 9, 10, and 11. It's, it's, it's why the sentence was written. And I'm going to contend to you three things. Verse 9 says, God has a plan. Verse 11 says, everything's in that plan, including you and me. And verse 10 says, Jesus is the point of the plan. 
Okay? So first, God has a plan. It says, with all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. The world was not made in randomness. God has a plan. God had a plan. God has a plan. God's executing God's plan. Now, here's the problems we have with that. Three problems. First one, I don't see sometimes God's plan. Most of the time, I don't see God's plan. And if you're going through some things right now in your life, it may not be very comforting to have a preacher up here saying, don't worry about it. God has a plan. That's why Christians are some of the worst counselors sometimes. Jesus, everything happens for a reason, so just get over it. Yeah, that helped. But I hope as I preach this, you will find comfort even in your struggles that God has a plan. Because if God doesn't have a plan, here's what Bertrand Russell said, the famous thinker, atheist. If God doesn't have a plan, I want you to know this is what the outcome is. He said, Bertrand Russell said, that all of us were just an accidental collocation of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, inspiration, and noonday brightness, every sunset, Mozart, Beethoven, Beyonce, whatever floats your boat, all that inspiration is nothing but an accidental collocation of atoms. The brightness of human genius, all of it is destined to extinction. Isn't that hopeful? In the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of human achievement must inevitably be buried under the debris of the universe in ruins. Only with the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can a soul be safely built. Wow. Pick me. I want to live in unyielding despair. But you know what? At least Bertrand Russell had the courage to say it. But there's a lot of people walking around Cleveland and elsewhere and say, I don't believe there's a plan, there's no God. And they don't realize the gravity of what they're saying. Because if it's not true, they said, Paul said it this way uh, in Corinthians. He said, you know, if Christ has not been raised, if everything we've been preaching is not true, if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. We're the most pitiful fools alive. But Paul goes on to say, thanks be to God, it is true. And when you can't see it, God still has a plan. One of my favorite Christmas movies, and I'm a Christmas movie-aholic, is The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington. I love that movie. It was a burnout pastor, right, working in an urban area. He's burnout. He's trying to do God's will, but, you know, nothing's working. He's questioning whether I have any meaning, I have any purpose. This spills into his marriage. His marriage gets uh, unraveling. His youngest son has his best friend, but his best friend is put into foster care and is taken to states away, and his son falls apart in tears. And here's Denzel Washington, the angel sent to help. And he's looking out the pastor's windows at all this, and he just looks up and says, I know you have a plan. But for the life of me, I have no idea what it is. And that's the angel. <laughs> so if you ever get to that place like, I, I just don't, I don't understand God's plan, welcome to the club. Moses said it. Elijah said it. Jeremiah said it. Jonah said it. The disciples said it after Jesus. God, I can't see your plan. But the, the other problem is problem number two. One, I can't see your plan. And two, this is our, our human hubris, right? Your plan doesn't seem to be going according to my plan. <laughs> I have an agenda for my life. 
I have an understanding of how you're supposed to work things out in my life, right? I uh, had a privilege when my wife and I have been a speaker at Exponential Conference down in Orlando. It's an amazing conference. Speakers come from all over the world. And I listen, uh, you know, I, I appreciate they asked me to go speak, but what I appreciate more is I get to listen to all these great preachers. And there was a man named Oscar Muriu, I can't say it very well. He's African. He has a mega church in Kenya. He's bringing, I mean, the, the, the Christianity is growing in ten, Kenya 10 times the rate of the population. So Christianity's fine. It's maybe broken America, but it isn't broken Africa and Asia and southern South America. Christianity's exploding in those areas. And Oscar got up and he was looking at all these young church planners and he said, I want to I give you a piece of advice. God is not interested in helping you with your plan for your life. But God is very interested in helping you with his plan for your life. Can you imagine if God answered all our prayers? Can you imagine? Ever see the movie Bruce Almighty? When he just got frustrated and all these prayers are coming, he just said, yes. And then chaos ensues, right? Rioting in the streets, stock market falling, everybody winning the lottery, stealing from each other. You know, I don't want to be an ageist here. I don't want to pick on young people. But I remember when I was 20, the stuff I prayed for. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that you didn't answer those prayers with yes. Right? Because I probably knew about 20% of what was good for my life back then. I think now, four decades later, I might be sniffing 50% that I know what's good for my life. And, and, you know, the truth is, I have learned to pray, God, give me what I would be asking for if I knew what you knew. That's the prayer. God has a plan. Um, and, and the third thing we wonder, well, Chip, what about free will? Are we just ants on an anthill? Are we just robots? Are we cogs in the machine? No, the Bible's way more nuanced than we are. We think so linear, and that's why our world is dividing, because everything's so binary. It's either this way or that way. Two things can't be true at the same time. But God doesn't think linearly. God thinks three-dimensionally and four-dimensionally and five-dimensionally and six-dimensionally. And so if you ask Paul, the apostle, are we free or is there an inescapable plan, he would say yes. We're, we're, and he's calling to tell us that. I, I, gosh, thank you, Paul. I needed you today. So there is a plan, and the truth is, even because we're free will and our choices matter, in fact, if you read Ephesians, the first three chapters, he says God has a plan, and then the next four, five, and six, he says, but your choices really matter. You are destined to be like Christ. So you ought to work with every fiber of your being and discipline yourself and do all that it takes to grow into the likeness of Christ. Do you see it? There's, God has a plan. We're destined for it, but yet our choices really matter. And that's why I want to say to you, everything is part of the plan, including you. In fact, if you heard what was read to us today, it said we've been given an inheritance. What it literally says there, we've been made heirs which means we've been chosen. If you assign heirs in your will, you choose that. If you have an insurance policy and you pick beneficiaries, you choose that. And it's a God in his eternal will that has been written through history has made us heirs. God is the master architect. We are the builders. We have a role to play. That's why Jesus said, pray The harvest is plentiful. Pray that laborers will come into the harvest because we've been given this commission to build. I had the privilege in college 
at Colgate University to sit under a man uh, who really brought me to Christ, our chaplain. And he was a close personal friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he was the point person for the movement when it went to Chicago. And Coleman was his name, Dr. Colin Brown. And he, Colgate Rochester, in, just up the street from Colgate University, was where Dr. King went to seminary. And so Dr. King's preaching professor, Coleman brought to Colgate to speak to our class. Can you imagine being the preaching professor, the teaching professor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? That's kind of cool. I, I, had a, I, I do a lot of coaching, and I was coaching a group of pastors down in Atlanta, and there was an African-American pastor. We've become good friends, and he still considers me a coach. And his name, he came up to me. He says, oh, my name's Robert King. And I said, King in Atlanta. He goes, no, not that one. I said, okay, then maybe I can coach you. But this is a preaching teacher of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he shared with our class that he had been with Dr. King in Washington when the March on Washington happened. He said they were holed up in a hotel room for three days working on Dr. King's speech. Three days. He said we probably worked collectively about 24 hours on this message. And Dr. King had a manuscript. It was about 13 pages. I mean, he knew he'd be on TV. You got a lot of politicians walking. You know, you want to be meticulous, right? But he said he stood behind Dr. King when he got up on the platform and he looked out at the hundreds of thousands of people. And Dr. King took that manuscript and threw it on the floor. <laughs> True story. And he preached the I Have a Dream speech. Arguably, what, one of the three most influential, you know, speeches in history? And all of us in the class, somebody asked what we were all thinking. said, why in the world would he do that? I mean, why would he do that? And his preaching professor said something. This was 40 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. He said, because sometimes the chimes of history are open before you, and the mallet is in your hand, and you are called to play upon them. And we knew that day, and Martin knew the mallet was in his hands. See, God has a plan, but we play a part in it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, great, I have to go out and speak the Mar I have a dream speech. <laughs> Every preacher worth their salt wants to preach that message, or either Peter's message when, you know, he preached it in Acts 2, and 3,000 people were baptized. I'm still waiting to preach that one. Okay, never mind. Didn't work. I couldn't even get 200 years to a um, But we all dream of that. But the truth is, in our everyday walking around life, God gives us opportunities to be part of his plan. And what Paul is saying to us is two things. One, be alert. Be alert. Right? Stay alert. Um, that's what Jesus said in Matthew uh, 23 and 24. He said what? Stay alert. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't know. So are you, um, these are questions I want to ask you today. Are you utterly alert? Are you paying attention to ways that you can move the mission, that you can build Christ's kingdom? Because he calls us to do it. He wrote the blueprints but said, on this rock, what rock? Us. I will build my church. And, and we're called this. Do we stay alert? I was alert in Heinen's parking lot across the street the other day. This is a chest out story. I hope after this you're going to realize I am truly an avenger. I am. I'm I just, my, my costume is in my office, but I do fly around at night. And, but I was walking up to, 
They're laughing at the tech team. I was walking up to Heinz the other day, and you're not supposed to have shopping carts in the parking lot. But that was a terrible windy day with the storm. If you remember, I was walking up. But somebody left a shopping cart on the, uh, I guess, the sidewalk, and the wind caught it, and it was blew, blowing right at this beautiful brand-new SUV. And because I'm an Avenger, I flew over, and just in the, you guys, come on, you get ready to kind of ooh and ah. I glided over, I grabbed it just before it hit the van. Ooh, I, I, I'm going to preach this side of the building, the heck with you guys. So what happened was, <laughs> but I did, I flew over, I pulled it up, and there was somebody stand on the sidewalk, and he said, man, that brother's going to be so happy that you were paying attention. Now, that's a simple, tiny little thing. Oh, thank you. Could you do that again? Little, come on, you're sounding like a ghost on Halloween. Little louder. Okay, I'm going to give you guys a chance. Come on, redeem yourself. Okay, Garfield, if you're online, Garfield Memorial Church is haunted. It is. Um, anyhow, the point was, pay attention. See, I have never preached Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream speech, and I never will. But i tell you a lesson I learned very early. When I first started preaching, I was out in New Jersey at Princeton Seminary with this young man in the front row is attending right now, and he's going to set the world on fire. He's going to set the world on fire. And I was there, and they asked me to preach at a church in Paris in New Jersey, and um, I stunk so bad back then. I was so bad. If you made me listen to my cassette tapes... Oh, sorry, millennials. We had these things that table. <laughs> I would hate it. But I was preaching at this church in Paris in New Jersey. I got up to preach, and I was so discombobulated. I'm going to tell you, I sucked. I was just bad. And I'm in the line, and, you know, you got to shake hands. It's like being at your own funeral where people go through and go, oh, that was interesting, you know. Uh, or worse yet, nice speech. I didn't give a speech. I'm preaching, sister. Get out of here. Um, you know, and, but there was a 20-something woman. She was over on the side, and she was very timid. After Bayboy went through, she came over to me, and she said, you know, she said, I'm not a member of this church. She said, in fact, this weekend I had decided to take my life. I was driving by this church this morning, and for whatever reason, I was led to drive in. She said, I got to tell you, when you preach such and such and such, I decide I don't have to take my life anymore. Is there anybody at this church I can talk to? And I hooked her up with the pastor. And two years later, when I graduated from seminary, I talked to him. He said, you remember that young woman that today? She's the chair of our church council. She is on fire for the Lord. And I was sure I sucked. And guess what? I did. But I was standing in a position trying to at least do my job, and God, the master weaver, mastered, tied it into the universe. And that's, friends, what it is. You have a responsibility to understand God's plan, but understand, I am a part of it. And even when I can't see God, God can see me. And I need to stand and give my testimony when it's called to give. I, I, got, I got more to say, but I got to tell you this story because it's too daggone good if I can find it. Hold on. I... I didn't look at any of my notes today, so I told you I just felt like preaching. I read a story about Bob Davey. Bob Davey lives in England, and obviously he's staying alert. His wife, uh, Gloria, was out on a walk in their kind of rural area of, of the UK, and they saw a church. It, it was called St. Mary's Church, and it actually had been devastated by a bomb in World War I. It was in ruins. And what happened, there was a Satanist cult that decided to go in and turn that 
what was left of that church into a, an altar of Satan. And there were all kind of writings on and everything else. Um, you couldn't see the tower. There was no roofs, windows, or floors. But when Gloria went home and told Bob that, who was a le leader in his church and a Christian, he decided that he would make a decision that would dominate the next 34 years of his life. He would rebuild that church. And he said, I felt it was my duty to save it because this annoyed me intensely. I've been a Christian all my life, but I wasn't going to put up with this on my watch. Do you hear that? He walked inside. The door was long gone. He started clearing it out. 60 years worth of rubbish. For 22 years, he was at this site every day, he said, except on days of family christenings and weddings. He said, I haven't had a holiday in 22 years, but I didn't want one. Who wants to retire? He said, my advice to others, don't play golf or buy a Spanish villa when you retire. Find yourself a ruined church to save. There's a lot of ruined churches in America right now. And they need builders like Bob. I just thought Bob the builder. Anyhow, I know, my mind went there. Hey, it's a small world. You wouldn't want to paint it. Um, and Bob faced stiff, stiff resistance. Actually, the Satanist said, if you continue to come here, we'll kill you. And one night, one tried to ride him, run him over. Bob said he wasn't frightened. I'll come in an electric trolley if I have to. And until his death in 2021, at the age of 91, that's exactly what he did. He rebuilt that church. It only seats about 60 people. But every Sunday, they, they, different groups come, and they started having 135 people sign up. So the only church in a rural area, that area, that you can't go to without booking a seat. Because one guy decided to stay alert. And instead of going off golfing in the north of France like I would, he tried, made his life to save a ruined church. Are you utterly alert? Are you utterly alert? Are you paying attention? That's what Paul's asking us. And the other part of it, because we have, a, we have a role, we have a role in this, but when we know it's a plan, there's a plan, guess what? We can relax. Can you relax? Can you do when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything? Instead, in every situation with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. Then the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Can you relax? That one cut me the last few weeks when I've been working on this message. My wife told me, I don't sleep well. I've not been relaxing. This has been a hell of a two and a half years, friends, and that's theologically correct. And it's, I've, I've been feeling like, you know, Garfield Memorial Church is such a special place, and, you know, we've been disrupted. Churches across America have been disrupted. I, I, I read something like one out of every seven churches in America closed in the past two and a half years. And we've been, we've been coming back, and I've been working so hard. Get us in person. Get online. Gather in community. You know, grow spiritually. Guard unity. All these things. And when I started reading this, I felt the, the, really the Spirit of God come to me and say, Chip, this is why you can't relax, because you think it's all about you. You forgot the subject of the sentence. You need it. You need it. You're faithful in the plan. But know that I am the architect of the plan. And you can relax. Now, I won't. Ask my mom, my wife. I, I, I'm too type A, but I'm going to try to. Can you try to as well? Can we, we really stand at our guard? Can we swoop in in parking lots and save the day and yet be, know that we're safe in God's plan? If you want a great story about that, read the two-thirds of the book of Genesis. You know, the book of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Rebecca and 
Sarah and Jacob and his kids. And what a mess it was. God said, I'm going to bless you and through you all the people of the world will be blessed. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. But Abraham wasn't much of a blessing. In fact, he let his wife be swooped up by another person saying, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And guess what? Isaac, his son, generational curses, he did the same thing. And then Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, and Jacob, because he was never loved by his father, became dysfunctional, and, and he began to barter with his wives and barter with his children, and he played favorites, and his whole family was dysfunctional. Joseph was his favorite, and he became a spoiled brat, and his brothers were envious. And you know the story. They stuck Joseph down a hole. They sold him into slavery. He was in slavery. And then he, you know, he's trying to be the best slave, but he was unjustly accused. He ends up in prison for years and years and years and forgotten. And you go, God, you got a plan? This was the family to save the earth? And Jacob rises, though, out of that prison. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, and he saves hundreds of thousands of people during famine. And he saves his family. And you, you wonder, why didn't God show up and say, Joseph, you're a brat. J Jacob, you are a dysfunctional father. Because in all things, God is working for good. So when you make poor choices, and you will, and you blow it, and you will, let me say this to you. Pen, ultimately, if you know what that word means, you can screw up, but ultimately you can't. And God is still at work. And then Genesis 50, verse 20 said what? Jacob before his brothers who did him dirty. They wept together. They experienced forgiveness together. It was a foreshadowing of the cross. And he said, you meant it for evil. But God used it for good. So friends, that's the message. That there is a plan. You're safe in that plan. You're part of that plan. And lastly, and I'm just going to, it shouldn't be lastly, but I got to end right now. Jesus is the point of the plan. It says everything in the world is falling apart. Genesis 3, the story of creation, whether you believe it's a true story, it's a truth story. We want to be like God and everything fell apart. We fall apart within ourselves. We fall apart with each other. Gosh, we're so difficult and mean to one another these days. Everything's falling apart. But God says that he sent Christ to bring unity to all things in heaven and under under the earth, under Christ. He came to put things back together again. He came to put marriages back together again and families back together again and humanity back together again. He doesn't pick sides. And, and you know, and when preachers do, they've got to be careful. God, is, is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But we know everything falls apart because of, because of our poor choices in this world. But it says, Hebrews 1.3 says, but Jesus Christ holds all things together under the power of his word. I heard a famous model recently gave an article, and she's in her 20s, and she said, I'm worried about some of my friends who are getting older. She said, they're not handling it very well. And she said, but I'm prepared. She said, I'm a size 6 right now, and I know in about 10 years I'll probably be a size 10, but I'm getting myself emotionally prepared for that. And I just sat there and I said, I think you might want to get yourself emotionally prepared for a little more than that. Because <laughs> trouble's coming. <laughs> and things are falling apart. But Jesus Christ, the point of all God's plan, is bring, bringing us back together. In fact, that's why he was torn apart on the cross. So that we could be made whole. There's a plan, friends. 
Everything's in that plan, including you and me. And Jesus Christ is the point of the plan. And he is redeeming what we have broken. And when we know that, you can relax. Keep working, but relax. I want you all, uh, as you see me in the lobby over the next few weeks, don't make me a hypocrite. Say, hey, bro, relax. Okay? Because I'm going to say it to you too. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for letting us know we're safe in the plan, but that doesn't excuse us for laziness and, and disorder and creating chaos instead of unity. God, help us to know that our choices matter, but even when we blow it, you restore it. But again, you, you don't restore it, so we just keep blowing it. You restore it so we can see, like Joseph did, the errors of his ways. Spoiled brat who grew into one who could forgive. Grow us up like that, Lord, and let us know that we're safe with you because of what you've done being torn apart. Everything falling apart can and will be made whole in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.